You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone, to Toronto Center's uh, COP28 executive uh, panel on supporting net zero transition. I always love to do these webinars. I don't get a chance, so it's a real treat for me personally. Just to let you know, we have more than 400 people registered for this webinar, which is very large. And uh, we have, uh, we're covering the you know alphabet um, list of countries all the way from Algeria, Angola, down to Zambia, Zimbabwe, and just about every country in between, about 80, and uh, a lot of different organizations. And, and a couple of our uh, um, panelists are actually on the ground in Dubai, Martin Maloney and our host from NGFS, and we are excited to get some sense from them. So since establishment in 1998, Toronto Center has trained in 23,000 financial supervisors from 190 countries and territories to build more stable, resilient, and inclusive financial systems. We actually began working on climate risk uh, for supervisors, uh, supervisors capacity building back in 2016, uh, before it was really on anyone's radar at the time. We did it because of the substantial implications to global financial stability, risk of crisis from climate change, and financial inclusion challenges. Since that time, Standard-setting bodies and regulators have also sprung into action pretty decisively, but there's much more work to be done. Today, as negotiations at COP28 continue, we bring into focus the essential role of regulatory and supervisory authorities in ensuring financial institutions uh, uh, imperative of developing credible transition plans. The stakes are high as ultimately our aim is to ensure the stability and resilience of the financial system, the protection of consumers, and the establishment of public and investor confidence in net zero markets that have mitigated risks of greenwashing. Toronto Center is proud to collaborate with several global bodies in this space, including IOSCO, NGFS, and IAIS as their implementation partner in supervisory capacity building, also very much value our collaboration with the ISSB. To help make sense of the changing world, we have assembled a star panel. They include Martin Maloney, Secretary General of IOSCO, Irene Espinosa Cantelano, Deputy Governor, Banco de Mexico, Banco de Mexico, Michael Jancy, a board member of the ISSB, and Jean Bassanet, head of NGFS, Deputy Director, Financial Stability, Bank de France. And you have seen their bios. I vouch for their excellence because they've all appeared in more than one of our uh, webinars and training sessions. And Toronto Center's mission is uh, sponsored by our key funders, Global Affairs Canada, Swedish CEDA, and the IMF. We're going to have two rounds. I'm going to pose questions, and each speaker will have uh, four to five minutes to respond. We strongly encourage the audience to send questions. Please don't hesitate to do so. And uh, we will begin. 
So Martin, let's begin with you. You're on the ground in uh, Dubai. IOSCO has been very active with sustainability initiatives, such as disclosure and compliance, carbon markets, just to name a few. Orderly transition plans are also a key tool for achieving net zero. They are receiving increased attention from international standard setters and voluntary market-led initiatives. Can you let us know how are transition plans currently used in capital markets? Thanks. I am, and um, it's great to be speaking to you from COP. It's been an extraordinary few days. There are thousands of people here endlessly talking about these, these topics that are absolutely critical to us. We came here with two sets of messages, one about voluntary carbon markets and the other about supervisory action against greenwashing. But it wouldn't surprise me if next year when we come here that we came with messages about transition plans. So I think your, your seminar is really well timed in, in that regard. And I think your question is the right one to ask also, because we have to look back, I think, to look forward and really assess where we are at the moment. And if you take a step back, if you look at where we've been over the second decade of the, of the 21st century, between 2010 and 2020, when transition plans really emerged as a, as a phenomenon, and there was a lot of concern initially around stranded assets and companies' values and what role companies wanted to take and where they wanted to position themselves in relation to these issues. And that was particularly after the Paris Agreement, uh, uh, Accord. And they, they took stands, a lot of companies, they joined alliances and they issued transition plans. And I think we have to all be a little bit honest and say, at one point, it got into a little bit of a hype cycle, I think it's fair to say. Uh, and some of the transition planning uh, plans that were issued um, did um, fall more into the category of marketing documents than, than, than what we would have probably liked them to be. And I think the problems, and I'm sorry if I focus on the problems, because I don't want to take away from the achievement of that, of that, that people actually started doing this. And it, it's a good thing that people started, uh, companies started to do this. But focus for a moment on the challenges. And um, the challenges, I think, are challenges on the one hand of substance and on the other hand of form. When you start getting companies announcing that they've joined such and such an alliance and they're going to net zero by 2050 or, or whatever the dates they picked are, you start to see some very significant problems. The first is time schedules. So um, they were very often talking about times which were way beyond the time horizon of the investors and the analysts. And that, that meant you don't get that proper critical assessment very often by the market of some of the things that they were saying. And in a lot of them, you get a lot of uh, what I might call technology dependence. We will be doing X, Y, and Z, and it will all depend on us developing a new technology. And we can't really tell you at this point in time when that will be developed or, or how likely it is, what the risks are associated with that. And I think the third major problem of substance was companies, particularly companies which are large companies, always based in one jurisdiction or another or substantively based there, what was the relationship between what they were saying in their transition plans and jurisdictional roadmaps? And that was always very, and still is, very hard to pin down, and it's 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 unclear. And it, that's, I think those are the three problems of substance. But then if you look at the problems of form, um, they needed to they need to explain well how they're going to get where they're going. They need to explain well when they're going to get there, and they need to explain particularly if they're, uh, if asset managers are to use them, how, what that means for investors. 
And if you look at those those different things, frankly, a lot of transition plans, there are some great transition plans, but a lot of transition plans don't meet those uh, uh, criteria. Um, so if you're looking at it again from the point of view of asset managers, um, how are they relying on transition plans? Are they relying on them in fund level reporting to clients? And if so, how dependable are they in that regard? Uh, data providers, are they relying on, on transition plans in order to do their ratings? And again, how reliable are they for that goal? And uh, index providers, are they been relied on in index construction? If they are really at this point or have been over the last few years, to a significant extent, marketing documents, those key reliances within the industry and the sector on them are the kind of things that might worry regulators that there are weaknesses in that reliance because there are weaknesses in the authoritativeness of these documents. So there's a degree of concern among regulators, I think, at the present time, without willing to wishing to take away from the fact that it's a good thing that people have started to publish transition plans. That's great. Uh, Martin, just a follow-up question. I mean, um, you, what you're touching on is really that tension between the plan and planning. I mean, there are famous people who made famous quotations about how ultimately plans are useless, but planning is what matters, right? So yeah. do you do you think that, uh, you know, with this fits and starts and hype cycles out of the way, we are learning how to plan better like, rather than having a shiny plan that we can sort of uh, get the marketing benefit from? Are we at least learning from that planning uh, Absolutely. exercises in your view? Yeah. Absolutely. I think the debate, if not, it, it's almost at this point, I think, a burning debate. A, a lot of people have seen those transition plans being issued and almost on a sector by sector basis, you can start to analyze the quality of the different plans and the level of assurance you can get. So the question of planning is on the agenda. And now we're in the space of saying, OK, we've now got to pin down how to improve the quality. It's, it's a key moment, particularly now that we've got to a certain place in relation to disclosure standards at a global level, when we need to move on and ask ourselves questions about transition plans. And I think many jurisdictions are beginning to do that. And at a global level, we're also starting to do that. So while I've listed out problems, it's actually a positive story because we've moved on from a vague aspiration to have transition plans to the more precise question of how to make them good sector by sector, and particularly when it comes to the financial sector and how banks might use them and how asset managers might use them and, and, and so on. Great, thank you. And Irene, so good to have you again. And Irene, sometimes it takes more courage to resist than to go forward. So being first to gate on planning is not always the best, right? So in the case of Mexico, uh, when it comes to climate finance strategy and industry transition plans, how are financial authorities like yourself setting supervisory expectations for financial institutions? Can you give us some sense of that, please? Yes, thank you, Babak. And I'm delighted to share this panel with the, with my colleagues. Um, well, in Mexico, we I would start by saying that we are at an early stage and we are not yet at the stage of transition plans. We are actually much more on the assessing of risks so um, in Mexico, the regulation and supervision is uh, shared responsibilities among different um, authorities. So for us, coordination is really crucial because we all have to go in the same direction. Although so some of our responsibilities are unique for each of the 
of the authorities and others are shared. So we have a coordination uh, structure that is mainly done with a, within our um, sustainability committee, which is a, a, a general government committee where we all, all, all the authorities are there. And in 2020, there was uh, the initiative to create a financial sustainability committee. So I, in this committee, we, we all participate and we give some inputs to the stability um, commission that is the, the broader entity. Uh, so there we are working on four different areas. And as I said, all of those are to set the, the basis for assessing risks. And we are not yet at the, at the transition plans, but I think these are very good basis for assessing the risks. We have worked and advanced in, uh, in the issuing of a taxonomy that stands out uh, because it, it considers also ESG um, uh, uh, criteria. And so it's been already issued and we are about to start a pilot with financial institutions to test the taxonomy. There is also a second group of capital mobilization where we are um, exploring what are the barriers to, to capital mobilization for sustainable finance. Uh, we also have a group in assessing financial risks and the um, elaboration of uh, risk scenarios, which will be uh, uh, a crucial um, a milestone in terms of assessing risks and in terms of transition plans. And we are also about to start a pilot program in uh, starting to use those um, um, risk and scenario models. It's a, we are using a GCAM model. And the fourth, and which has a lot to do with the ISSB, is uh, disclosure and what it, this means and how to implement S1 and S2 norms in Mexico. So we are working in this environment. We are facing a lot of challenges among them. Uh, I would say, first of all, the climate data gap that we have. And I think this is a shared uh, challenge in, in all jurisdiction. Also, the uh, capabilities that we have to build an infrastructure to um, bring financial institutions and also other non-financial institutions that will be subject to this regulation to start uh, assessing the risks and also uh, to start getting into preparing the, the scenarios so that this is a basis for institutions to, to uh, start doing the, the transition plans. So um, I think that we are in a very early stage. We're setting very good um, fundamentals and we will have to continue uh, with this coordination. Once we have uh, the results of these pilots and we start to, um, to issue some kind of regulation, once we get there, we will have to deal with also a lot of capacity building for supervision. Well, that's, that's great. Uh, well, you said capacity building for supervision. That's like music to my ears. So, you know, 1-800 Toronto Center, don't forget us for that. But, you know, what you, 
alerted, what you alluded to is very interesting because you're taking a very comprehensive approach. You're looking at what others are doing, but you're not just um, limiting yourself to risk analysis. You're also taking a chance with the pilot. So, you know, best, uh, best wishes on that. And also something to really keep in mind, uh, you know, and, a lot of places, people, our governments are, are in a pickle, like take Canada and Mexico. You know, you can have all the best rhetoric in the world, but at the same time, we're both very resource-rich countries. We have people who are dependent on the old file. So we can't just wholesale transition. So none of this is devoid of broader stakeholder political angles. So with that, let's go to uh, Michael. Michael, 2023 was a seminal year for ISSB. It's incredible what you guys have achieved in a short span of time. Release of IFRS S1 and S2, already endorsed by IOSCO. Thanks, Martin. And many jurisdictions are tremendous achievements. And ISSB is now working on additional principles for ESG disclosures. Uh, Michael, you're no stranger to ESG. I remember from my work at CPPIB, you were one of the first uh, people in ESG uh, anywhere, really. What is ISSB's current work and thinking for transition planning? Thanks. Well, thank you. And uh, like, I'm also just delighted to be here talking about transition plans and on, on this esteemed panel. And it's nice. It almost feels like ISSB's two-year birthday party um, because we were launched two years ago at COP. So, uh, and thank you uh, for highlighting sort of the work that's been done, which is just, I think, a tribute to our chair and co-chairs and, and the team at large. Um, so maybe a little bit of context, you know, when we were launched, um, our objective was to create, you know, high quality, globally aligned, assurable, sustainability disclosure standards that would provide decision useful information for investors. That was that was the, the promise. And uh, there was an expectation that we would not be sort of adding another letter to the so-called alphabet soup of the disclosure uh, frameworks that are already out there in the market. And I say that because I think we, you know, in that two year time frame, we have launched you know, S1, which is our general disclosures, and S2, which is a climate-related sustainability disclosures. And we worked hard at ensuring that we were consolidating some of these investor-focused sustainability disclosure frameworks and incorporating them into our work because we knew the market was really fed up with this alphabet soup. And I say that because one of the one of the things that we did, um, we worked very closely with the TCFD and we incorporated the sort of core architecture of the TCFD, those four pillars, governance, strategy, risk, and metrics and targets. And those are really foundational ar architectural components of both our S1 and S2. And I mentioned that because when transition plans are mentioned within our climate related disclosures, the S2, it's really within that strategy component. That's where you that's where you see specific reference to transition plans. And so the broader context of that is that uh, as part of S2, companies need to provide information on to the extent that sustainability or climate related risks and opportunities are affecting their strategy and business decision making. So that's the type of information that users want. And as part of that, 
they need to provide information or context in regards to how they're responding or plan to respond to those climate-related risks and opportunities. And that's where transition plans are mentioned as a specific element of how a company might be responding to those climate risks and opportunities. Now, just to be clear, S2 does not say companies have to have transition plans in place, but what it does say, if a company has a transition place or a transition plan in place to help them manage those risks or leverage those opportunities, then the plan has to be disclosed. And as part of that, that information has to include sort of the assumptions that underpin that transition plan and also information about the dependencies upon which that plan relies. And maybe I'll take that back to something Martin said, you know, referenced um, that sometimes these transition plans are dependent on technological advances, for example. So that would be an example of if a company has a transition plan in place, it would have to talk about that as either an assumption for achieving a particular outcome or a dependency. Um, so those, those are the types of things that the S2 talks about in regards to transition plans. There's also disclosure elements in there in regards to a company needing to disclose how it's resourcing that plan uh, or plans to resource and also providing information over different reporting periods or periods of time. So users of that information, which again, we're focused on users as investors and other allocators of capital, again, provide that, that information that they need to evaluate the prospects of that entity over the short, medium, and long term. So that's really where transition plans um, are specifically mentioned within S2. Of course, one would expect that if there is a transition plan in place, uh, that in other parts of, of disclosure, say in the governance section, companies would be talking about at the very highest levels uh, of the company, how they are overseeing climate risk opportunities and responses to those, including transition plans. And we would also expect to see then information on metrics and targets for clarity in regards to what the transition plans uh, final outcome or objectives would be. But on that note, um, I'll just say, we're sort of agnostic in regards to uh, transition plans, in regards to what their stated outcome would be. We're not saying, you know, an entity has to have a net zero outcome or one and a half degree outcome. They need to disclose what that is and then how they plan to get there. But we're agnostic in regards to, you know, the how to, I guess, in regards to um, transition plans, which I know we'll talk a little bit more about. Thank you, Michael. It's it's a big job, you know. So, uh, I mean, the, the, one of the advantages of the uniformity of the standards you're talking about is, you know, it's like sunshine. It's the best disinfectant. You find out what are the gaps where people are falling. Maybe with, in what it might even in, uh, in spare some kind of a competition on on uh, better reporting. So, hopefully, that will all lead into an impact. Now, um, I think we lost Jean to the excitement of COP28, uh, but we're very lucky to have Thomas with us. Thomas, thanks for stepping in. Really happy to have you. And uh, we're very happy uh, about the collaboration we did with NGFS, I think earlier last month. And uh, uh, we're still hearing positive input uh, from uh, various people who participated. Earlier this year, the NGFS published a comprehensive stock take of current frameworks and literature on transition plans and practices, as well as an overview of the current state of play in different jurisdictions. 
Would you please share with us what are your key findings? What really interested is what is common to most transition plans that are relevant to supervisors for assessing uh, safety and soundness. Thank you. Thank you, Babak, uh, and, and hi, everybody. Um, I would like to extend my thanks uh, on behalf of Jean Boissino, uh, who is the, the head of the Secretariat and who is on the ground uh, <laughs> at, at COP, facing some technical difficulties. Uh, so uh, he, he was really uh, happy about uh, sharing this uh, uh, outcome of the, of the stock take. Um, indeed, I mean, the, the NGFS published its stock take in May, uh, we had around 50 jurisdictions responding to the stock take. Our membership now is around 130 members uh, and 20 observers. So this shows that you know the, the the matter itself is still early. But what I'm hearing also the the other panelists, I'm, I'm also hearing that it's moving and maturing very fast. Uh, and indeed, uh, a lot of the, the the takeaways from the stock take. Uh, are in line with with what we, what we just heard from uh, Martin, Irene, and uh, and Michael. Um, so, from from the NGFS perspective, uh, we looked at the transition plans and planning uh, both as a strategic tool for uh, financial institutions to to support an efficient allocation of capital across the sectors uh, towards a low emission economy, and also about on, on uh, as as a risk management tool uh, to identify and mitigate climate risk. Uh, in a forward-looking manner. And so in the stock take that we published six months ago, uh, we sought to assess how transition planning for financial institutions uh, first relate to microprudential authorities' role and mandate, and then uh, could also be considered and, and used most effectively uh, within the supervisory toolkit. We found six uh, takeaways. Uh, but maybe the overarching one that was unanimous is, is that uh, first, no one is alone and you should not do this alone. <laughs> and uh, collectively, we still need to, to build further capacity and knowledge in this area. We, have, we still have a lot to, to learn uh, and to align. And this is also why having other global, regional and sectoral uh, fora looking at the issue is a very welcome development. And we are working very closely as the NGFS with other uh, global forests to, uh, to, to build up that common understanding and kind of synchronize that understanding across uh, supervisors and, and authorities, uh, which will help because, you know, we are hearing about uh, piling up regulation standards that should be interoperable. Uh, this coordination should allow us to, to have uh, to adjust the expectations and, and streamline the, the future framework. So I will, I will come on the, the common uh, features that we are seeing in transition plannings. Maybe quick overview of the six uh, findings. Uh, basically, multiple definitions of transition plans uh, that reflect the different uses. We actually discussed that. Uh, and indeed, there is this risk that... Uh, uh, Martin referred to of, of, of marketing tool and, and greenwashing. So uh, as long as we don't have a, a, a one single definition or harmonized expectations, you will see this uh, heterogeneity in, in what we call a transition plan. Um, second, there is merit in distinguishing transition planning, we think, which is the strategic aspect and transition plan, which is more uh, speaking to transparency to a specific audience. Um, third, which is also something that has been said before, uh, frameworks that exist today speak to a mix of objectives, mix of audiences, uh, and 
they predominantly relate to climate-related corporate disclosures. So this is actually kind of the one a first common element or at least majority uh, elements that we that we're seeing. Um, fourth transition plan uh, could be a useful source of information for microprudential authorities. It could become actually a central uh, source of information uh, to develop the, the, the forward-looking view from supervisors uh, resulting from a transition uh, strategy and to assess whether that transition strategy from a firm is actually commensurate with its risks management framework, with the, the, the global management framework of the firm. Uh, on the common elements, I, I will come back. And maybe the, 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 another takeaway was that uh, microprudential authorities, uh, uh, the role they play needs to be always situated in the context of their, uh, of their mandate and their interactions with other regulators within their jurisdictions. Irene was actually speaking about that, uh, that coordination is key with other regulators, other authorities within the jurisdiction. Uh, maybe on the common element themselves, uh, this is very much in line with uh, what Michael said about S2 uh, from ISSB. For us, we found that uh, governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics are the key elements on which that we find in, in transition plans in general. Those, this is kind of the core on which we can build uh, to, to elaborate a, a common framework. Uh, and so this, this will be a driver of the, of the next uh, work. And maybe one last thing, because we have not addressed that. Um, one remark is that uh, when assessing transition uh, or when, when constructing, building and assessing transition plans, both uh, transition is important, but, but also physical risks and the way firms mitigate, adjust or adapt. That was uh, that was very good. Thank you. And in fact, uh, I want to take a um, take a uh, you know sec from the last point you meant physical risk. We we are correctly obsessed with transition plans, but there are companies that are failing due to climate. I mean, there are cases of uh, companies in California and elsewhere that have failed, uh, bankrupted. So we cannot take our eyes off the, that the important risk. I mean, we cannot think about this risk as a future risk. This is the risk that is unfolding right now. We're very much in that Al Gore's famous uh, boiling frog analogy right now, whether we like it or not. Martin may have some observations of that down the line uh, from, from the ground, Mark, and that's a hint, hint Mark. Okay, so let's go back um, uh, round two now. And I, I'm already beginning to see some questions. So please, uh, Write your questions down. We'll endeavor to get to as many of them as possible. Irene, let's get back to you. How are financial authorities in Mexico looking at transition plans with respect to overall prudential framework, short-term, long-term priorities, and how are they coordinating amongst themselves? Thank you. Um, yes, uh, as I mentioned, our Sustainable Finance Committee through that we are um, bringing into um, the discussion the issue of uh, transition plans. And in our last um, second report that was issued this year in May, uh, we already highlighted that we were evaluating the possibility of including um, transition plans in our microprudential framework. So with this, the, it was like the setting the basis for the um, 
pilot program with a climate uh, scenarios to be implemented. So our approach is a bottom-up approach, starting with uh, some uh, climate scenarios with especially uh, banks, financial institutions, also pension funds and um, insurers. So we are starting to do that. And uh, that will be the approach, uh, sort of having the, um, the, the pilot and, and our aim is to see how we could like label um, a green and sustainable financing so that we can avoid um, greenwashing. And so we are, um, as authorities, all embedded. So it's the pension funds um, authority that is um, taking uh, in its hands the, 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 the project, but also insurers, also the uh, bankers and security commission, and also with the participation of the, the sectors, the, the representatives of the banking sectors and of the insurance sectors. Uh, so um, it, this is our approach and it's a very inclusive and participationary approach. We have these um, private sector entities also participating as observers in our sustainable finance committee. So it's an ongoing um, work that is very much based also on the dialogue with the different sectors. And so uh, we are not kind of rushing into what will be the regulation, but we are much more into, into going together and going hand in hand with the different types of institutions and how to uh, bring them into this a microprudential um, framework so that we are sure that everybody has this common uh, understanding. Thank you very much. I uh, appreciate that. And uh, uh, let's go back to uh, uh, Thomas uh, NGFS. Uh, as the NGFS deepens its work with its own network of members and even stakeholders here, what is your latest thinking with respect to how transition plans are considered within the overall prudential framework and um, related to that what is the potential use for the information collected within transition plans vis-a-vis -vis financial regulators and supervisors uh, various perspectives i think irani touch base i mean right now they're in a very consensus driven mode but you could probably imagine at some point somebody has to step in and make the hard decision and Irene, I'm sorry, you're the central bank. So <laughs> in some ways it kind of falls on you at the end of the day. But but in the meantime, Jean, what is the thinking, latest thinking you have? You're representing so many central banks around the world. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, thank I said you. Thomas. And, sorry, not Jean. Thomas. Yeah, no, no problem. Thank you. And there, there are some uh, elements that we kind of alluded before. Uh, but basically, uh, indeed, now that the stock is stock take has been made uh, we are with the NGFS now turning to a second phase of, of work and going a bit uh, deeper into uh, some some specific aspects one of which is the, uh, the the prudential authorities role in in assessing the credibility of this uh, of those transition plans um, maybe one uh, important point is that we really insist on a building block approach which means that 
even though there might be different objectives and mandates from various authorities and uh, that the objective of a transition plan might not be the same from one jurisdiction to the other, at least uh, transition planning is always useful. And maybe that speaks to the first one of the first interventions that uh, you had, Babak. Uh, so um, whatever the category, basically, let's go with this building block approach uh, where... Uh, um, not respective of, of the objectives, we, we still have this uh, this effort that is made. And one specific aspect for us was the consideration for uh, EMDEs in transition planning, uh, where there is a specific challenge on physical data, where physical risk is actually um, a, a, a risk that is uh, that can be prominent. Uh, and the question is really how to translate that into a financial risk metrics. And this is why there is work looking at the uh, insurance coverage ratio, for instance, uh, as uh, one aspect relating maybe a bit more to adaptation. Um, also, we are working on recommendations on the elements from the real economy, so data coming from the, the, the real economy uh, transition that could be relevant for use by the financial institutions, uh, and therefore, uh, how do we uh, contribute, and how the financial system contributes to scale up uh, also the ability for corporates themselves uh, to provide useful data, uh, to make those, those transition plans kind of uh, comprehensive and credible. And then the, the prudential authorities' role in itself um, uh, in assessing the credibility of transition plans. This is really uh, a matter of, uh, of capacity building uh, and of uh, 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 knowing exactly uh, what uh, the, the climate risks uh, mean and how to read the transition plan. So this is something that will come also with experience because we are seeing now more and more transition plans being published. Uh, we are talking more and more about transition planning and therefore I think that the expectations uh, will also mature and and, uh, and as we move along, something we haven't discussed, but maybe um, opening uh, you know to uh, further uh, discussion, Aside from the net zero targets, uh, which is the main point of, of this uh, panel, there's also a question of nature and biodiversity targets that could be important at one point um, uh, when looking at, at transition planning. Um, so yeah, this is, and, and I was mentioning before uh, other fora uh, having uh, some work, there, there is work ongoing at the FSB, for instance, on uh, transition planning and um, both from the financial and non-financial firms with implication to the, the financial stability. And we're very uh, working very much uh, together on, on that. That's great. So like, I, I think, you know, when, 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 it, when a, a sort of someone sits and listens to this from the abstract, they may think that we're all talking about planning, planning, planning. Let's just do this planning. That person does planning. But there really is nothing wrong with throwing the spaghetti uh, to the wall, right? We really are trying to learn. There is no blueprint. And one of the advantages of what you are doing at NGFS from our vantage point is you have access to all these various plans. You're beginning to understand what works, what doesn't work. You are your own generative AI in a sense, right? You're going through it and trying to determine what's useful. And it's going to be very useful for those jurisdictions that are beginning now or those who are trying to assess what they're doing. So oh, that's fantastic. And um, let's go to uh, Michael here. Michael, I have a question for you. I apologize. It's a bit of a long question, but it's an interesting context. Uh, uh, let me build it up again. When the ISSB launched its inaugural IFRS standard, sustainability disclosure standards, it made reference to the publication of transition plans. 
Transition plan initiatives are also led by the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which is being led by Mark Carney and the Transition Plan Task Force. These and the ISSB frameworks have been said to be complementary. So can this bring about a more consistent international approach to development and publication of transition plans? So that's part one. And is there a need for further guidance for transition planning that financial supervisors and regulators should pay attention to? Thank you. Yeah, so there's a lot there, but maybe I'll pick up on sort of the, the first theme, which is about alignment. Um, a word we often use at, at the ISSB is interoperability. And again, it's this idea that for the, the users of this information, um, they want to see you know consistency to the extent that that is possible. And so this whole conversation has been about collaboration. And you know, in an attempt to bring that standardization or consistency to the extent possible and where it adds value. So I'm going to provide you the ISSB perspective. And you mentioned GFANS and, and TPT specifically. And so from an ISSB perspective, I think this is a fantastic example of the collaborative efforts that we've seen in regards to our work, which has been on disclosure and the efforts of well, NGFS and, and GFANS. TPT and others that are working on the how-to. So I talked to my colleagues on the technical staff and they feel very good about the collaboration, the, the liaison between um, the, the technical team at ISSB and, and the respective teams at GFANS and, and TPT. And in fact, from our perspective, and I hope our colleagues would say the same at those organizations, um, we feel that a great deal of, of our intent in the language of S2 has actually been incorporated into those frameworks, right? And so it, 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 there's various ways to think about it. One way is that if you think about a pyramid, we're sort of the base of the pyramid with the disclosure of information, what's expected. And then these organizations that we're talking about have, you know, additionality on top of that, talking about the how-to and I'll go back to the way Thomas referred to it, which is building blocks, which is very comfortable for us at ISSB because that's how we talk about it. If we think about our disclosures, um, you know, our objective is for the ISSB standards to become the global baseline. And I think with the help of many around this figurative table and many others out there, um, we are on that pathway now to having S1 and S2 be that global baseline for sustainability disclosures. But we're also very comfortable with the idea of building blocks. We recognize that jurisdictions, other stakeholders may have particular needs for information that are not incorporated into S1 and S2, and they can build upon that global baseline. Just so, and, and Thomas, you use that example in a slightly different way, but that concept is very comfortable for us. I mean, that's part of, uh, you know, in our, in our DNA as an organization. And so I think that our relationship again with GFANS and TPT for many of my colleagues and myself is sort of a good example of that building block where the, the foundational element of disclosure and then these other organizations uh, are, are leveraging what's in S2, but in, you know, uh, to build the how-to components, what does a good plan look like, bringing specificity to particular pathways, depending on what sector you're in or what outcome you're looking for. So, so to me, we're, what we're talking about today between the groups that are represented or have been talked about as a living, breathing example of our of our desire for alignment and our collaborative 
engagement so far to to try and achieve that. Now, you also the second part of your question is about capacity building and so on. And absolutely, there's no doubt that that transition planning um, alongside many of the other things that we're seeing in our standards require uh, a future commitment to standard or to, to capacity building and education and so on. And I dare say, and I'll say this from a personal standpoint, um, but I think all of my ISSB colleagues around around the table feel the same way is that um, the commitment that the ISSB has and the IFRS Foundation uh, more broadly to the capacity building around um, the sustainability disclosure standards that we're putting into the market is, I think, tremendous. It's very exciting for me personally and empowering for our work to know that you know, you're putting standards into the market and that's not the end of it, that we want these standards to be embraced and we want them to be embraced by the range of different stakeholders, jurisdictions, um, auditors, assurers, um, users, preparers, regulators. And we know that there's a lot of work to be done, just as we're talking about here on transition planning. We know it's it's this capacity building is is too significant, too important a job to be left to to one organization. That's impossible. So capacity building is again a collaborative effort. So, and I know that groups around the table here are committed to that alongside the ISSB. And so, for me personally, that's an incredibly exciting part of our work um, and critical if we're to achieve our goal of becoming that global baseline and and seeing what we're talking about here today, transition plans getting to a place where they're useful for prudential regulators, other regulators, and the users ultimately of the information. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Michael. This interoperability you're talking about is critically important. And also thanks for your plug on capacity building. You're absolutely correct. It takes more than one or two organizations to do it. Just uh, by way of a very, uh, 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 Martin, I promise you it's not hype cycle, but Toronto Center has launched a certified financial supervisor designation, uh, which has had a good uptake. And one of the, couple of the modules there are actually about climate as well. So I encourage various authorities to take a look at it. And you, it's kind of like you have to pass an exam. So this is really a very uh, methodical approach to building skill set. But when it comes to climate, uh, we are looking at uh, some of these issues around planning and transition planning. And John, biodiversity, uh, sorry, uh, Thomas, biodiversity loss is very important. We applaud in GFS, and also we have a toolkit in that topic that we have made available for supervisors. Um, Martin, let me turn to you for the last question on our structured part of the discussion before we go into the Q&A. And you've already made known your views about the uh, versus transition plans versus transition planning. And as the secretary, well, you're kind of Henry Kissinger, right? You have, you, have, you have to deal with a lot of different regulators from different parts of the world who are part of your membership, different priorities. And when you look at all of that, can this work on transition planning proceed in a way that supports global consistency and reduces risk fragmentation? I mean, in a way, I'm kind of giving you this question at the end because you've heard a lot of different approaches that we're all talking about. Thank you. Yes, and, and very interesting. One of the ways we... Um increasingly, I think, deal with innovation and the challenge of innovation and change in markets is, and, and is to build on and rely on the consensus that we have among our members around the 38 IOSCO principles. And that means very often what you're doing is 
asking your members to think of something new as analogous to something well established and old. So that's the way we've dealt, let's say, with crypto. Uh, and, and in this area, I think it's always quite useful just to remind ourselves that transition plans are really part of corporate strategy publications by uh, by listed issuers and by, by, by large companies. And they're therefore they're linked to corporate performance reporting as an update on, on corporate strategy. They're slightly different because they're on a slightly different topic, but they, are, but they really should be seen by analogy with that. And I think that analogy will help our members to maintain the kind of consensus and approach and find the optimal level at the global level for uniformity of approach and difference in predictions. But once you say that, the one thing that becomes immediately obvious, and I'm really glad Michael has spoken so clearly on this on this panel about what the ISSB has, has achieved, is that at the end of 2024, there's a key moment coming for transition plans, published transition plans, because from the end of 2024, we will not only have the ISSB standards in place for disclosure on a global basis, we will also have the IAASB standards in place and the IESBA standards in relation to providing assurance on those disclosures. And therefore, from the start of 2025, you get into a space where the data, the facts, the underlying information that transition plans should be measured against is information that should be disclosed or should have been disclosed in accordance with those global standards. And suddenly, and I'm not sure everybody uh, in the marketplace really understands this point, from, 20, from 2025 onwards, Transition plans that talk in terms of data points and information and targets and goals that are not consistent with the disclosures that have been made uh, using the ISSB standards and being independently assured, they will look like second-rate transition plans. The top-notch transition plans, the best practice for publication of transition plans will be to produce plans that are consistent with the disclosures that are being made. And the consequence of that is you not only have to do the marketing a bit about how great we are for aspiring to this, and they are, they, they deserve the applause, but you start to have to report the failures and the inadequacies and the limitations and the weaknesses. And that's critical for markets. And I see that as an absolutely fundamental point of transition at the beginning of 2025. Of course, it will take some time and the ISSB and us and others are working on how to roll out the full implementation of those standards. That will all take some time. But to me, that's an absolutely critical moment. And it's in recognition and pre preparation for that, that we are now considering starting to do work ourselves on transition plans. And we're going, I think, to look separately at preparers and asset managers. And there's a number of questions that we will need to ask. We'll do our own stock take just as the NGFS has done theirs. And our stock take will have a slightly different focus than theirs, absolutely understandably, I think, for, because of the different starting point. We're going to look at, at what is common across the world, what markets are expecting, what's really working for markets, and um, what's the impact of investors on the better versus worse transition plan reporting, and what are the vulnerabilities in those transition plans. We may go on to do recommendations, but that really depends on the very point you're asking. What is it good to have common at a global level, and what should be left to jurisdictions or left to sectors for emerging practice and so on? But the kind of key issues for 
preparers that I suspect we will look at, and I'm, I'm giving you a little bit of an anticipation here of what's coming down the tracks, is well, I think we need to look at what audiences are using the transition plans, and therefore it's a bit like the materiality question. Are, is it adequate to the audiences that are relying on it, who are active in markets? What are the essential elements we're seeing that are really working in terms of goals, milestones, action plans, and the detail and granularity around that? And then also this key point, I think, about corporate performance reporting, identifying the failures, the limitations, and the weaknesses, and to what extent that is actually happening as a follow-on to the publication with the great fanfare of the, of the transition plan. And then separately, I think we also need to look at asset managers. We need to look at the reliance that they're making on transition plans and the assumptions that they're using in that. And maybe this key question, and it's an old question for asset managers, Exit or engage when you run into a problem. Some asset managers are developing an approach of we see a company that is not quite doing what it said it was doing in its transition plans. We engage with that company. We kind of try to figure out how they're collecting, how they're correcting that. Other asset managers maybe maybe in the space of you know if they're not meeting their targets, we exit and we go into different investments. Now people need to know what individual asset managers approach to that question is and it's very closely linked to the question of the amount of resources an asset manager applies to dealing with transition plans interrogating them dialoguing with companies about their transition plans and what's happening from the asset manager point of view the cheap option is exit and the more expensive op option is engagement with those companies but do the investors know what their approach is? And if they know, then they can choose their asset manager depending on what kind of uh, uh, approach they want. So we, we are going to be looking, I suspect, for the optimum consistency at a global level. We're going to be looking for what's common already and to see where we can play a, a supportive role while at the same time leaving jurisdictions to do uh, uh, what they need to do themselves. And, uh, you know, Irene talked about uh, uh, Mexico's sort of approach of, of not moving too fast. And I think that would be common to quite a lot of jurisdictions. There's a need for care and attention here before we start uh, uh, coming out with rules and regulations and, and recommendations at a, at a global or at a jurisdictional level. So that I, 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 I applaud that prudence. Thank you very much, Martin. And also, it's very interesting you talked about the asset managers will have a choice to make, right? Whether to, uh, you know, shape uh, the com the companies that do not have a robust transition plan or exit. And, you know, when you put that vis-a-vis -vis the fact that there's just not an infinite universe of uh, investable quality assets, that makes it very hard. Just imagine if you're a Norwegian pension fund or Canada's pension plan investment fund on the public market side. Uh, you know, you have to make those decisions. Those are not easy decisions, right? So thank you for laying that out. So let's go to the uh, Q&A. I'm going to take them in different orders that are here. Uh, Irene, I'm wondering if I can give you Florence's question. Uh, she's from Tanzania. She's asking a very interesting question. Some countries, mostly African, seem to be struggling with grappling around the entire idea of phasing out fossil fuel sources as our economies are heavily invested in resources. How do you address such economies in a bid to make transition into our economic realities? <laughs> I guess this is what we live in, right? So what is, uh, when that thinking came about, what were some of the issues that uh, you as central banks started thinking about? Because this is very relevant to many jurisdictions, right? Yes, of course. And Mexico is a very 
fossil-oriented um, uh, economy. Um, uh, but at the same time, we are very committed with all of the, um, the climate change um, uh, uh, agreements. So um, what um, I think that is feasible, and actually it's already taking place in Mexico, is to have a transition plan for our oil company. Uh, it already has a sustainability committee that is in, in the management of the company. It's quite difficult, but now uh, we are in a, in a crossroads because also rating agencies are pushing a lot in terms of having a transition plan of our oil company. And uh, one of these rating agencies is now helping the company to prepare this transition plan, which will start with a baseline of what are the assets that, that it has and also have some indicators and targets. And so I think that there is, uh, although it, it looks like very challenging, there is the possibility to make a transition plan that is uh, feasible and that is credible to go into uh, net zero. Maybe the question will be, what will be the time horizon that is needed for that? And um, that will depend on, also on what are the resources available to, um, to go to that transition plan. But I think uh, technically there is a very good chance to have this type of, of um, strategies, although it sounds like very challenging. Thank you, thank you. I was gonna ask a question of Martin, but I noticed that he's not uh, here now. Oh, coming back. Uh, no, thank you. That was actually a very uh, uh, robust response that you gave. Martin, thank you so much for coming back. We thought you um, you managed to go away. Um, I wanna, first of all, uh, there's a question I wanna pose to you, but before I do that, I can't resist. You're on the ground and the question that Irene was responding to uh, really at the, at the end of it comes down to, you know, the, the new buzzword is it's not, uh, what is it, mitigation is adaptation. I'm told that there's a lot of various countries on the ground now making, trying to make deals about this uh, right now. You may or may be exposed to that or not, but what's your general sense of being on the ground, like 70,000, 100,000 people in this? What, what, what is the atmosphere like? Thank you. The, the atmosphere is extremely uh, engaged and a, a very positive atmosphere here. And it's fascinating to see that the key theme, I would say, if you brought it down to just one word uh, uh, here, is trust. And where is the trust uh, uh, in, in, in the system? And one thing it's, it's made me think about is, well, what does net mean in net zero? Uh, and to what extent, if you if you don't have trust in in the various instruments for ne for netting off, uh, do do you end up moving from net zero to gross zero as the as the only way forward? And it seems to me we've got to maintain that trust and that capacity for trust. And if we uh, take too many liberties, frankly, we lose that trust and we make our life harder in terms of getting to, to zero. And, and, and that has been a very live, I think, debate here. And one of the areas as a result that we've been having a lot of discussions here about, about is the voluntary carbon uh, uh, credits and to what extent they can be part of the solution and what the ecosystem and infrastructure would need to be for them to be part of the solution uh, here and one that would be trusted around, around the world. 
I would say we're not at a point where we have a definitive strategic answer to that question, but it is striking how burning an issue it is and, and very closely related to the question of the global south and, and how we get uh, uh, the right flow of, of capital into, into the global south to facilitate their efforts in, in this area. Thank you. That's uh, very, very useful. And uh, I'm going to have a question that I want to pose to Martin. You and also uh, was one Thomas, if you could also weigh in, because uh, uh, there's a global perspective on this. Martin, before you became the head of uh, um, uh, IOSCO, you were also a very prominent uh, head of supervision yourself. So this question is probably asking point out to you: How can we enhance our supervisory framework to effectively assess and measure? the climate risk exposure of financial institutions, considering both physical and transition risks as they align with the goals of net zero transition planning. I guess this is the question that really kind of puts it all together for the supervisor sitting at their desk, right? Thanks. So, I think Martin Pro. So I'm wondering, Thomas, would you mind taking this question? And then if Martin comes back, we can uh, ask him, yeah. No, yeah, de definitely. Thank you. I mean, uh, I think that one one aspect that to to make it very concrete uh, is, and and again, this is uh, reacting on on what uh, Irene and, and Martin said before. Um, there is this. It, it's really important that we make the right linkages uh, from the transition plans uh, to actual supervisory measures, supervisory mandates. And also maybe before that, uh, uh, that we link, that we managed to link transition planning and scenario analysis uh, and and uh, target setting for, for, for supervisors. So that the transition plans become part of a whole, uh, become part of a framework that are not just isolated and standing there uh, on their own. So this is maybe the, the one aspect uh, to, to answer your question of, in, in these transition plans, the more they will be integrated within, uh, you know, uh, scenario analysis, uh, within uh, the the day-to-day the, the -day, uh, supervision, and the more uh, climate risk, both transition and physical, will be actually uh, a, a conversation that will uh, take place between uh, uh, financial institutions and, and their supervisors, but also financial institutions and their investors and the, uh, more uh, generally the, the um, market actors. So I think that the, the, the key point here is really uh, to make uh, this tool, uh, first, that this tool becomes effective. And for that, uh, as we were all mentioning, uh, there's still a, a bit of a way to go. Uh, I think that indeed uh, ISSB's uh, um, climate standard work as a global uh, uh, baseline. We need to take that and, you know, as uh, all the aspects on which we can manage to converge, uh, we need to take them. We still have some road to go for this to be mature. But then once we have a, a tool that is actually uh, effective, this tool actually needs to be integrated within the broader, uh, you know, prudential framework and supervisory practices. And this will be another challenge. Uh, and, and, and again, you know, uh, going back to the, the coordination with other uh, regulators and actors, we have not talked so much about, um, uh, you know, uh, governments and, uh, and, and other uh, public actors, but, you know, this is fundamental for uh, uh, transition plans to be credible as well. They need to take into account uh, the, 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 uh, the engagements, the paths that are uh, being taken by the various uh, public authorities. And therefore, 
it cannot be just a, a, a self-standing uh, tool. And, and the more it will be integrated within our supervisory uh, um, uh, framework, but uh, you know, not only framework, within the supervisory dialogue between the institutions and their supervisors, and the more climate risk, post-transition and physical risk will be understood and will, you know, the, we, the more we will have the weapons to actually mitigate that risk. Not Thank you. That's that. a, no, it's a very good comprehensive uh, answer. I will come to Martin in a second on that. But Michael, I'm wondering if I can um, uh, ask you a question. Hopefully, it's something that even if you're not working directly, you can bring some wisdom into it. Uh, it's a question about developing countries. How and how can we uh, help uh, developing countries in Africa attain transition plans to climatically uh, um, sound policies, seeing that most need locally led climate programs. Interesting, right? So, because, and in some of these cases, we have this dilemma of <clears throat> countries that are climate risk uh, takers. They're not the climate risk generators. I'm sure you have thought a lot about this in the course of ISSB and your career. Do you have any views on this question, please? Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, I, I really liked Florence's question because it highlights the fact that you know, our commitment at ISSB to create a global baseline um, means no jurisdiction, no stakeholder can be left behind. And one of the things that we were really cognizant about was, again, to create standards that would provide decision useful information to investors to make more informed decisions. And, and we certainly didn't want, I mean, our, our goal was to put all jurisdictions, companies across jurisdictions on that level playing field so that from an information standpoint, global investors uh, would have the same information when they were looking at an investment in Africa or Latin America as they would in sort of a developed country. Um, and so, um, and in fact, what's been really heartening um, and exciting for you know, myself and I think most of my, all of my colleagues is that we've seen developing countries or jurisdictions, many of, of which are in Africa, embrace the, embrace the ISSB standards and, and talk about wanting to be first movers and, and early adopters of the standards because they see the standards as putting them on, on a level playing field. So it's not um, a question of, uh, again, uh, a risk of flight of capital. Many of these jurisdictions are looking at this as a really genuine opportunity to attract capital. Um, and so I think that, you know, with respect to transition plans, again, if we're getting that that baseline of disclosure, as I talked about within the ISSB on transition plans, then we're starting to level the playing field and investors have the information or will start to have the information that they require to make make decisions again, and no jurisdiction uh, are going to be prejudiced in regards to um, you know a lack of information. So so that's exciting. I'm going to give you a personal reflection here. So this is not an ISSB reflection, and and one of the reasons I really appreciate the question in regards to sort of the maybe particular sensitivities of the global south, and we've already heard Mexico and even. Where I sit in Canada, you know, this idea of a just transition is an important one, right? With resource heavy, uh, and it's a conversation that, you know, in my own situation, I, I am with financial institutions is a really important one. So I think 
there's been a lot of talk in transition plans currently around uh, reducing financed emissions. You know, this idea of financial institutions supporting fossil fuel industry. And one of the things that um, I think we need to hear more of, it's not just about conversations and transition plans about reducing financed emissions. It's about financing emission reductions, um, which is maybe a subtle difference. But again, I think this pertains to that sort of idea of just transition in the global south and in other jurisdictions. So it's it's about thinking about how we, you know, financial institutions can support that transition, um, you know, in emissions reductions, not just getting out of the financed emissions, maybe a subtle difference. But these are the types of conversations that I know are happening. They're picking up steam. And I think they incorporate some of the some of the things that Florence was highlighting in her question as concerns. Um, so I hope that touches on some of the things you wanted to talk about, Babak. I know it's not it's not directly related uh, to our work at ISSB per se. No, that's great. That's great. Thank you so much for that. And, and uh, Martin, you get a um, you get a star for coming back a couple of times after getting kicked out by the by the internet, but. I'm wondering if I can pose this question that I wanted to pose to you. You might have caught parts of it, but before you uh, were the head of uh, IOSCO, you were also a prominent uh, uh, superintendent of uh, financial institutions. Uh, so how can we enhance our supervisory framework to effectively assess and measure the climate risk exposure of financial institutions? considering both physical and transition risks. So you can imagine the person who's asking this is a supervisor sitting at a desk somewhere trying to deal with these big issues while others are at COP28 and dealing with the global stuff. But what is your immediate guidance to someone who's asking that question? Thank you. So um, I, I think we have to be honest and say, you know, we, we can construct scenarios and do scenario analysis. And I, I agree with, uh, uh, I think what Tom was saying about, uh, about that. But there's also a limit to what regulators and supervisors, day-to-day -day supervisors can do in terms of actually understanding these risks themselves. Very often our focus in a lot of areas is to oversee the process by which we encourage and require and cajole the regulated entities to understand the risks they face themselves. And in, in this area, I think that will bear fruit for us. And particularly if you think about what we're doing with the, with the ISSB uh, uh, standards, what we're really trying to do is create a market discipline and create an ecosystem out there whereby you start to have a pool of experts, sector by sector in the economy, who understand and understand better and better the sort of climate risks that are faced and can circulate those analyses of the risk in that community where it can get debated and different people can take different perspectives in terms of investment based on different analyses of the risk. So if you think about it as there's the climate risks that are common to all of us and we all face them and many of them are deeply uncertain and there are trigger points and so on in the way that climate is working. So we all face certain risks, but then there are there are very strongly analyzable, if there is such a word, risks that are sector by sector. And you can create a, a, an increasing and developing and ever richer understanding of what those risks are sector by sector, whether it's the car sector, the insurance sector, and so on. And then if you really understand the positioning of an individual company, you can differentiate the analysis of that company from the analysis of the overall sector. And then you start to get the ability to differentiate who you should invest in and who you shouldn't invest in. 
only way to do that in the kind of globalized economy we have in the world is through a globalized financial sector, being able to compare securities that are issued across the world within a certain sector, whether it's one in Hong Kong and the other one in London and so on. And you can really compare them and analyze the risks that are, 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 are uh, coming out of them. Where the regulators come in is in ensuring that the information you're using is good information. Secondly, that it's disclosed on a non-biased basis to the market so as to underpin uh, market integrity. And thirdly, that in the individual companies that they have processes internally of evaluation and assurance to make sure that Okay, um, we lost uh, uh, Martin, but he was actually on a roll. I thought he was making a lot of sense there. That was that was excellent contribution. Uh, I think maybe I need to go to the last question and give it to you, Irene, from your uh, uh, from the continent here. Uh, Claudia from uh, Chile is asking: Are there any guidance to integrate NDC in transition plans? Do you have any views on that? Sorry, you're muted, you're muted, I think. You are muted, yeah. Sorry. Um, no, I think we are not there yet and uh, we will have to work uh, on that. Um, I wouldn't rush into any type of guidance on that. Okay, okay, uh, that's great. Uh, uh, so let me at this point thank everyone. Um, I'm going to bring this to a close. Uh, you have been an amazing uh, group of speakers. Uh, Thomas, you get the special Oscars for just step, stepping in last minute. And uh, all of you, I'm glad Martin's coming back. Hi, Martin. I'm beginning. <laughs> listeners, I'm beginning to myself. Uh, so leave, leave, leaving, coming back. No, I was going to. I just gave the Oscars to Thomas for stepping in last minute. I'm giving you another Oscars for just your persistence, uh, perseverance to get back in. I was saying how wonderful all of you were, and I really mean that substantively. And you gave us a really snapshot of where we are, all the efforts people are putting in trying to get these transition planning right. And, uh, you know, it's, it is a global effort. Uh, it's been said many times. And Michael, um, I really appreciated your response to the last question. I think you kind of pulled it all together in that regard. So thanks, everyone. This will not be the last we'll have this conversation. And we'll have it at another time when we have a little bit more to talk about uh, the next stage, Transition Planning 2.0. But thank you for your participation and your time. And uh, we will make this uh, webinar available in our courses. It will be posted. And uh, some there are really good clips here that could be used. And also to those whose uh, questions we couldn't get to, my apologies, but no question will be lost. We'll deal with them in a different way for our various publications and other things. So thanks again. Have a good time and um, God bless. Bye.